0: Welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity Maine, a program of Agape Inc. And made possible by Coffee by Design, Rebel Blend Fund. This is a different kind of podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my effort to demonstrate the examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. Thank you, Sarah. First and foremost, I'm very honored that you and I have come back together in some way to Create this podcast together, and uh, you've done a lot of beautiful work in your life uh, so far. And uh, I would love to hear if the you could tell me just a little bit about Sarah and her journey.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I feel very honored to be here. There's so many things. Well, I grew up as an only child in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My father's an artist. My mom's an educator, and you know, had a pretty normal childhood for the most part. At nine years old, I experienced my first trauma, which really, I think, set off a lot of just later consequences for myself. You know, I started drinking early on, eighth grade, freshman year of high school. And that meant, you know, bringing alcohol to class with me first thing in the morning and quickly quickly spiraled into other things from weed to eventually cocaine and heroin amongst, you know, various other substances.
0: So you had this experience that you're kind of going along, you have a somewhat beautiful community of Ann Arbor, Michigan, a beautiful house. Your dad and mom are just kind of average, everyday, beautiful people. And something happens to you. And then a few years later, you kind of start to feel this uh, need for alcohol. And that just becomes progressively this kind of progressive process of almost medicating yourself.
1: Absolutely. And I think, yeah, looking back, I certainly always, or, you know, at least as far back as I can remember, which is around that age of nine, you know, I always had symptoms of anxiety and and depression. You know, still today, my head goes a million miles a second. And so finding things to slow that down and take breaks from that, I think, was what I was, you know, certainly seeking.
0: You could feel it, like, at first, the marijuana, the alcohol, those things, and moving on later on to to opiates and so on, mm -hmm. really helped you distract from that kind of fast pace of your mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And looking back, you know, I've kept a lot of journals over the year, which at times has felt like both a blessing and a curse to kind of relive and look at those Mm -hmm. moments and words. You know, but I talk about feeling really out of control, even at 12, 13, before things were really out of control.
0: What do you think was the vulnerability for you? Was it the trauma? Was it life itself? Was it being a young woman? What, What do you imagine was the contributing forces to make you really feel like, I can't stop my mind.
1: I mean, I think I've always been i have always been a really sensitive person. Mm-hmm. That's something my mom talks about as a child, that I would walk into the room at three, four years old and, and be able to read the energy of the room. Mm-hmm. I think as an only child, I grew up very independent. And I think I grew up in a lot of rooms with adults. And so I learned to have... Adult conversations really early on. I think in many ways it, it matured me far past my age early on.
0: It's almost like you was sort of stepped over the childhood, but at the same time you were sort of looking out into the world and and scanning a lot, sort yeah. of being hyper vigilant.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And then when the trauma sort of hit inside your self, that it also made it sort of even more hyper vigilant.
1: Yeah, I would think so.
0: You woke up one day sort of with an opiate.
1: I did. I did. And this is the night before my first day of college at 18. Yeah, I, you know, so at my senior year of high school, I was raped by someone who I was very close to and and cared about deeply. And and also went to rehab for the first time at 17, my senior year of high school. So, while that was initially for cocaine, you know, things certainly progressed afterwards and once I got back home.
0: I'm just uh, struck by, raped by somebody you really cared for and how that just really goes right into your soul.
1: Absolutely. It's something that has had many layers of unpacking Mm -hmm. and, you know, I think I've come to a a really healed place certainly around that trauma, but It's something that even came up years later that I just hadn't expected that I still needed to heal from. It's been a process.
0: Yeah, and and you're saying it a couple of times, healing from. Yeah. You know, just for our audience, what does healing from really mean?
1: I mean, I think it's so personal. And for me, it's looked a lot of different ways over the years. As we talked about early on, it was with Mm self-medicating. And I think that's important to say it in that way because those were substances that really helped me in many ways during those years. They got me through those years and I certainly don't have regrets about that. You know now in my life it it looks like yoga and art and spending time with family. It's included therapy and multiple treatment centers and ultimately I think it's really included building my own community.
0: You have moved it from a sort of external medication without judgment. You needed it. It was part of who you were at the time just to get through it. Yeah. And then to an internal world of yoga and care and love for your family and for the people around you and building community. Yeah.
1: You know, I have kind of two mottos that are very intertwined, but it's radical self love. And radical self-forgiveness, which I, you know, I think they're kind of two in the same. But those are the mottos that I try to apply to my life now.
0: Radical self-love, which is the first one of the two.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, loving yourself in every moment, even when you make mistakes. We're all human. We all make mistakes. You know, loving yourself... When even if you're on a diet, you just ate an entire bag of cookies. Mm. And like really accepting that. That's what I needed in that moment. It doesn't mean the rest of everything is off. Mm. It just means that I really accepted what I wanted and needed in that moment.
0: It's a way in which you are saying to yourself, be aware of that critical self-judgment. Yeah. Be aware of that spin that we have uh, in our brain. Yeah. Right. Self-love. I mean, people talk about self-compassion and self-love and self-acceptance, but you—I
1: probably get that from you, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
0: you. But when you think of radical, what yeah. what, are, what are you talking about?
1: I mean, even in your really worst moments, like just loving yourself every step of the way, no matter how deep you've gotten in that hole or how much you feel like you fucked up really loving yourself and I think that even goes back into you know looking at childhood looking at my high school years looking at years where maybe I wasn't making great choices and being like you know what that's what I needed at the time and mm. and I don't feel shame about those moments mm. and I think that's what kind of radical self-love is like resisting the shame that's put on us
0: well that's a whole topic in and of itself it right is. the shame <laughs> that's put upon us mm-hmm. Because this is taking you to your work, really. Yeah. You know, it's taking you to the place of, you know, sort of asking the community to stop shaming people.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And it's sort of deep in your heart that it's not just you or the internal work you're doing within yourself, but now it's a quest for asking people to stop. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, I think community has always been really really important to me, again, going back into my younger years of growing up in the U Church and, I don't know, being a Girl Scout, you know, having these different elements of community that meet different needs. And so certainly as I've done my own internal work, I've looked at the community around me. I, you know, like we've talked about, there's so much shame um, and stigma that's out there, and I don't really believe we can heal as individuals without also working on healing the community, because I feel like so many of the negative thoughts and experiences I've had are really because there's this break in our community.
0: Well, for you, even, when here you are as a very bright, uh, very personable person, And that the community was sort of saying you're an opiate user, you're an opiate addict, you're using these terms that were thrown at you that doesn't fit who you are. It fits something that happened to you. Sure.
1: And I think, I mean, but to that, there are certain words I still associate with me in that time because I don't feel ashamed of it. And that, that was a part of me. And I really own that. And you know that that part of me learned some incredible lessons and was humbled and was resilient so so there yes when those certain words and names are are put on me by other people it's hurtful and yet there is a part of me that still identifies with that person and the, you know i think it's just been stigmatized and it's seen as negative by others And my wish is that I could show and, you know, the community at large could start seeing the positives, if that makes sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's not really radical self-love. It's radical love.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That everyone is doing the best that they can at this moment in time. Yeah. And that we don't have a judgment about that. And that's what you're saying is sort of like, I, I accept. I radically accept. That there was a part of me that medicated trauma, a rape, a trauma episode, uh, things that happened to me along the way. And I see that as resilient. I see that as part of who I am. I see that as part of the reason I am who I am today. And they're valuable. And then there's this part that you're working with in the community that's trying to, like, could we stop the echo of shame? Could we really just see people? Is doing the best that they can with the resources they have. Yeah. And if there was a message you wanted to get out to people about that, because mm-hmm. it seems like it's so important to you, so much so that what I know about you is you shifted your career. You've, <laughs> you've become more of a community organizer. You've, uh, you've become an executive director of a messenger, mm-hmm. if you will, in our community. Why is it so important?
1: I have tried to answer that question for a lot of people, (laughs) including my husband, who, you know, is often a bit flabbergasted by how much I choose to give and how much I just deeply care. And what I've concluded is that is just my core. I mean, that's what I believe in more than anything else in the world. You know, this belief in community, this belief in mutual aid and you know, I, I prefer the, the term community builder. I don't think that I can come in and and necessarily reorganize. I, I think it's all out there. Mm. We just need to build upon it.
0: And do something about the message of shame. Yeah. And you you know, when you talk about community building, you're talking about that people don't really want them to give that message to others. They don't really want the message themselves. There's a part of them that's stuck with it. And what you're trying to do is build on the love, build on the radical love, the radical forgiveness.
1: Sure. And also while addressing people's most basic needs, you know, addressing the inequity in our society, addressing the racism in our society. You know, I think absolutely love and compassion can do magical healing. But there's also really real things out there that need work.
0: Yeah, and the question of how to get that work is to hear, right, is to listen to people, is, is to hear them deeply. Hear the know.
1: community. What are the needs of the community? Hear the people that are being affected.
0: And one of the things that is true that you just sort of touched on is you as a woman. And I wonder about that part of you because we just you just talked about racism. You talked about, but as a woman... There's been an incredible oppression.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we talked about how I was raped my senior year of high school. And a month later, when I finally told my mom, her response was, I I was too. And it's just been clear to me over the years how much generational trauma there is for women. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, I mean, misogyny, sexism are, are always things I face in every avenue of my life and work, you know, professionally and personally.
0: And that's one of the places where this shame can come. And I would imagine it was hard at times to push up against that, to find your own love for yourself, that radical self-love.
1: Yeah. So when I got out of rehab at 17 for the first time, I was there for a month. When I came back into my community and it was suggested that I attend 12-step meetings. So at 17, and although I didn't think so at the time, you know, still very naive, mm-hmm. I was thrown in into this community mm-hmm. and got a sponsor and went to meetings and got very involved and was told by my sponsor, you know, that any decision I made, I really needed to run past her. Mm-hmm. And I remember I wanted to get a tattoo for my 18th birthday. And I talked to her about it, and and she said, you know, it suggested that you don't make any big decisions in the first year of your sobriety. So, I, you know, I really don't think it's a good idea. And the message that I heard and heard over the years was that I don't know what's best for myself. Mm. Other people know what's better for me. And that other, I mean, and not that this wasn't something I'd already heard, that other people have so many opinions over my own body.
0: (laughs) Right. And this constant message, you know, whether it's the rape or the trauma or that has just been happening to women over and over. Yeah. And they're kind of minimizing their the beauty of their body and the boundary of it. Yeah. And almost to be used. Yeah. And that message is, you know, fits into all kinds of places where the, you get minimized. Mm-hmm. You right now have sort of, been working on behalf of just trying to insert this radical acceptance into the community that people are doing the best. And as we sort of finish this up, I wondered what would you want to say to the community if you just had a free time, free moment?
1: That's so much pressure. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry.
0: I appreciate you a lot.
1: I mean, and this is a topic on compassion. Hmm. And I think that We all have places in our heart for more Mm. compassion for each other. You know, I just urge people to try and put themselves in other people's shoes and to listen. I think, you know, we've said that the most important thing we can do is to listen and listen without judgment, listen without just trying to think of the next thing to say and start hearing our community.
0: In all the aspects.
1: In all the aspects and intersections.
0: Yeah. I love that, you know, the idea that we're going to listen deeply even before we activate our own minds. Mm-hmm. You can, and that what we need to do now to heal, to not have the division, is to listen and listen deeply with radical self love.
1: Yep. And radical self forgiveness.
0: Thank you. It's been a, a pleasure.
1: It's been wonderful. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. I truly hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to Coffee by Design and their Rebel Fund for their support to help make this podcast possible. Thank you again for being here. Take care.